to turn your Bibles again to the Old Testament, this time to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings 18, and we'll read in verses 3 and 4. We're going to read actually beginning in the middle of verse 3. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Father, as we come to this very brief passage this morning, I pray that you would open it up and show us again the treasures that are in your word for us to have and bring us to the feet of your son in great adoration and trust by the time we finish this morning we ask in jesus name amen Amen. well we've been spending several weeks uh, toward the end of the old testament during the time when the people of israel were sent into exile and then brought back out again but now we're going to back up several centuries from that here into this passage in first kings 18 Um, but there is a connection Um, between where we've been and now where we are much earlier in history. The connection is one of the reasons you remember why the people of Israel were sent into exile in Babylon and in Assyria was because they had begun to worship Baal, uh, this false god, this fertility god of the Canaanite people around them. Um, Well, that was the end of the, the Old Testament. They were worshiping Baal, but to find out when they began doing that, we come back to the book of 1 Kings. And we find that this Baal worship, this worshiping of this Canaanite god of the nations around them began here in this book and in this time period. And it really gained steam during the reign of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, whom we read about there in verse 4. But if you just back up into chapter 16 for a moment, I want to read a few verses so that you'll see kind of where we are and what was happening in Israel in the days in which we're planting our feet this morning. So back up into chapter 16, and let me read to you beginning in verse 29. 1 Kings 16, 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. In other words, he had continued the sins that were before him. Remember, they were trying to worship God in a way that they designed for themselves. They built these statues and said, this is what God is like. And that was a great sin. Jeroboam had done that. Well, we're told here that as though it weren't a terrible thing for Ahab to continue teaching the people to worship the true God by means of idols and statues, we also find that he married, verse 31, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Ahab introduces the worship of this false god, this fertility god, called Baal. And we are given a very strong hint there in chapter 16 that he did that under the influence of his wife, Jezebel. Jezebel, we read there, was not an Israelite. She was not a worshiper of the true God. She was from the land of Sidon. She was the daughter of the king of Sidon. 
And therefore, she had grown up her whole life worshiping Baal. This was normal to her, to worship this God that they had created with their own hands and with their own imaginations. And so she led her husband to bring that worship of that false God into the nation of Israel. And not only did she introduce Baal worship, but as we just read in chapter 18, she tried on top of that to eradicate the worship of the one true God, of Jehovah or Yahweh. So it wasn't enough for her to say, well, these people here worship uh, a different God than I do, but I want to introduce my religion, my God to them. But she also tried to eradicate the religion of the one true God. That's what we read in verse 4, isn't it? Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord. She tried to get rid of the people who were teaching the people God's word so that she might even further press upon them the worship of Baal. And that's where this man Obadiah comes in, Obadiah, who feared the Lord greatly in verse 3. Evidently, he worked for Ahab and Jezebel. Probably he was higher up in the royal court, somehow a royal official. And what we read is that this Obadiah, verse 3, feared the Lord greatly, for when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. So she's killing the prophets. He gathers a hundred of them together somehow. Who knows how he did it, but he got a hundred of them together, and he said, 50 of you are going to hide in this cave, 50 of you are going to hide in this cave, and I'm going to send you bread and water every day to keep you alive, to keep the word of God alive through you. And it required great courage, didn't it? I mean, that's the main thing to say about Obadiah. This man had great courage. It requires great courage to stand up against any king or queen anywhere, doesn't it? Or any government official anywhere to say, I defy this government. I defy the way you're doing things, especially when the government is monarchy that can do whatever they want to you. Any queen, it would have been hard for him to stand up against her, but especially this one. We just read in chapter 18, verse 4, that Jezebel was ruthless. She didn't just send these prophets of the Lord out of the land or tell them, you can't speak for the Lord anymore. She just began picking them off, killing them. And we also read in chapter 21, we won't read it this morning, but if you read it on your own, you would find that she was ruthless enough to have a man killed just so that she and her husband could build a nice little summer house in his piece of land that he refused to sell to her. Chapter 19, in fact, Uh, We read that Elijah, the great prophet of this time period, one of the great fearless, seemingly fearless prophets of all the Old Testament, went into hiding because he was so scared of this woman, Jezebel. And so Obadiah stands against that, and he shows far more than usual courage, doesn't he? He shows amazing courage. He risked his career in Ahab's household by standing up and doing what he did, and given that it was Jezebel that he worked for and how ruthless she was, he risked his life. All to preserve the word of the Lord through the prophets of the Lord. And so I just want to think this morning about Obadiah's courage and God's record of it here. Uh, This obscure little passage of scripture, this obscure little man that most people don't even know of. I want to think about his courage and, and gain something from it. I want to do that under four headings. Uh, there are four, four different things that we can learn from observing this brief passage about Obadiah. The first is that in the courage of Obadiah, we have a lesson about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. 
Now, it's happened through the years. Uh, several times during our Q&A times or just sometimes in personal conversations, several of you have said, what, is really, what does it mean to fear the Lord? What is that? Well, here's a great example of someone, verse 3, who feared the Lord. And not only feared the Lord, but feared the Lord greatly. But it's strange at first when you read this passage. You might, when you read this passage and you understand the background and who Jezebel was and what Obadiah was up against, you might expect to read, and Obadiah feared the queen greatly. Isn't that right? That's what this passage would read if it was written about someone like me. He knew what he ought to do, but he feared the queen greatly because he knew that she could lop off his head at any moment. But that's not what we read about Obadiah, is it? Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And so we read about him and we think about his courage and we might then imagine this incredibly brave man who had no worries about what she was going to do, this lion-like character, you know, someone from the movies that just doesn't seem to fear anyone. And say to ourselves, well... Obadiah feared the Lord. That must be what it's like to fear the Lord. You're just so courageous and bold. You can stand up in the face of death and not be afraid and fear no one else. That was what was said of John Knox, the great reformer in Scotland. They said of him, he feared the face of no man. Now, perhaps that was true. Perhaps it wasn't. But it wasn't actually true of Obadiah. Yes, he feared the Lord. Yes, he was courageous. But when you read on in chapter 18, what you find out is that he was actually quite worried about Jezebel. He was trembling. He was afraid of this woman, Jezebel, and rightly so. And yet he acted anyway. And yet he showed courage in spite of his fear of the queen. And the secret is there in verse 3. It's not that he didn't fear anyone. It's not that he had no fear. It's that he was able to stand up against the queen, not because he had no fear, but because he had fear of the Lord. He feared the Lord, in other words, more than he feared the queen. I think that's the point in verse 3. I think that's what we're being told. That the key to having great courage is not that you have no fear of difficult things that may come upon you when you do what's right. The key to having great courage is that you maybe do fear the things that may come upon you, but you fear the Lord more than you fear the hard things. I was talking to someone about this recently and talking about, boy, isn't it great when you can not have any fear of doing what's difficult in the Lord's work. But the reality is, is that you do fear when you're doing what's right because there may be consequences that come upon you, but you have to fear the Lord more. You fear disappointing him. You fear dishonoring him more than you fear having your coworkers laugh at you or having your family call you a fanatic or having people persecute you as they were doing to these prophets. The key to Obadiah's courage was not that he had no fear. The key to Obadiah's courage is that he feared the Lord more than he feared the queen. And that would be the key to your courage as well. You're going to be afraid when it comes time to share your faith. You're going to walk into work someday, and you're going to realize that there's this perfect opportunity in the middle of a conversation where you need to tell your coworker about Jesus, and your heart is going to begin to pitter-patter. And you're going to wonder, can they see that my hands are shaking? Can I say anything? What if I say something? What are they going to think? What if it gets back to my boss that I'm sharing the gospel at work and he tells me to mind my own business? What's going to happen? You're going to be afraid of those kinds of things. You're going to be afraid if you have to take an ethical stand at work because your boss is asking you to do something that you know isn't right. 
You're going to be afraid sometimes to hold people accountable in your home or in the church because it's hard. But the question is not ever, am I afraid? The question is, of whom am I afraid? Who do I fear most? Well, Obadiah feared Jezebel, but he feared the Lord greatly, we're told. And so must we. So there's a lesson here about fearing the Lord and the courage that comes from it. But then secondly, in the courage of Obadiah, there's an example of the importance of minor characters. I love this point. The importance of minor characters. Now, I won't ask you for a show of hands, but just think, how many of you could have stood up and told this story this morning to us? If I just said to you, now we're going to talk about Obadiah in 1 Kings 18. Nobody open your Bibles, but someone just stand up and tell me the story in your own words. How many of you would have known who Obadiah was? Don't feel bad if you didn't know. I had, I had to refresh my memory too. We ran across this passage in our family worship, and I thought, aha, that's a great story. Let me go and, let me go and read that again, and let me find out what it's really all about. Not many people know Obadiah. Not many people name their kids after him, right? Maybe there's more than one reason for that. But even, even if we thought that this was a wonderful name, we wouldn't even know who the guy was, most of us. He's just a very small character in the Bible. He's got very much a bit part in God's grand scheme of things. Two verses, and then a few following that that tell us some other things, not really about Obadiah, but about the situation that he was tied up in. A bit part in the grand scheme of things, and yet, how important was this bit character to those hundred prophets hidden away in the caves? And how important was he to their wives and to their children? How important was he to the flocks of people to whom they were able to minister after things died down and they were able to go back to safety? His importance to those people was incalculable, don't you think? And how important do you think this man Obadiah was to God? After all, it was God's word that was at stake in the lives of these prophets. It was God's honor that was at stake in the lives of these men. And Obadiah was the one who stepped up and did what needed to be done. How important is he to God? Important enough that God noticed him and put it down in the Bible, right? That's pretty important. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, we're told keeping watch on the evil and the good. He sees everything that people are doing, even the minor characters. And it's remarkable how many minor characters are honored in Scripture. People whose names that we don't remember very well because their parts are so small, and yet God knows, and their names are written in His books. For instance, there's old what's-his-name. You know the guy, you can't think of his name, but when Jeremiah was thrown in a pit for preaching the word of the Lord, and they went and got him out with ropes, and this guy brought some t-shirts and threw them into the bottom of the pit and said, put those under your underarms so that the ropes won't tear you apart when we pull you out. Minor character. Or there's the old fella when David was having to flee from his son and leave Jerusalem without very much of an army and very few provisions. And this old man came from his town and met David on the highway and brought food and provisions for his men. Or, or there's the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. And Jesus said, her story is always going to be told wherever my story is told. Or the guy who carried Jesus' cross as they came through the streets of Jerusalem. We may not always remember these people's names, 
Sometimes we don't even know their names because the Bible doesn't tell us. But these people, to Jeremiah, who was in the pit, to David, who was fleeing Jerusalem, to Jesus, who was preparing to die, how invaluable were these minor no-names? That's a lesson to us, I think. Every one of us really is a minor character. Now, there are a few Christian leaders today whose names will go down in the history books, whose books will be read, and whose churches will be remembered 100, 200 years from now. But probably none of those people are in this room. 100 years from now, there won't be any remembrance of our lives on any grand scale. Maybe our, our ancestors will at least have some record, but the church at large won't know who we are. And yet, the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. God knows our service. And he's no longer writing it down in the Bible, but he has books, believe me, where he is keeping record of all the minor characters who fill their role and do their part. And so when you fear the Lord more than you fear your boss or more than you fear your co-workers or more than you fear that family member who's always on you about your faith, when you fear the Lord more than them or when you serve at VBS or when you give to the missionaries or pray for them, it's written in God's books. Just like Obadiah's story is written in God's books. You may not have long chapters like Jacob or like Abraham or like David, but your service, your part is written in God's books. He knows. And believe me, those kids who will come to VBS and someday be in heaven, or those missionaries who survived hard years on the field, on your prayers, or those neighbors who come to know the Lord through you, how valuable is your bit part, your minor character part, to them? You see, minor characters are important to God, and they're important to lots of people whom they impact, though no one in the grand scheme of things will ever know. So we have to go on, all of us, playing our minor parts to the glory of God, doing our cameo appearances in the grand scheme of things to the glory of God. So the courage of Obadiah this morning teaches us a lesson about the fear of the Lord. It gives us an example of the importance of minor characters. And thirdly, in the courage of Obadiah, we have a reminder of the value of the word of God. A reminder of the value of the word of God. Of God. I think that's probably the main lesson that we learn from Obadiah. Jezebel, you remember, was determined not only to introduce the worship of Baal, but to eradicate the worship of the one true God. And what did she do to eradicate the worship of the one true God? She didn't destroy all the believers. She didn't even destroy the high-ranking believers like Obadiah. No, we read that Jezebel destroyed a particular class of believers. Jezebel, verse 4, destroyed the prophets of the Lord. Now, why did she do that? Not because the prophets are better than Obadiah or the other people. Not because they were more valuable in and of themselves. They were just people like everyone else who needed God's mercy and grace. But Jezebel understood and Jezebel went after the prophets because she knew that it was through the prophets that all of the rest of the people heard the word of God, and therefore were strengthened to worship God. And so she went after them. That's the same reason Obadiah went after them and rounded up a hundred of them to help them. Because in protecting these men, 
he was not just protecting these men. He was protecting the word of God that they disseminated to the people. Especially important. Not because of who they were, but because of what they did. Obadiah was willing to take a great personal risk in order to preserve not just the prophets, but the word of God that they were sent to proclaim. And really, regardless of the risk that he took, even if it wasn't a big risk for him to do this, think about the the size of the job, providing food for 100 people. Not in a nice kitchen where everything can be prepared and then easily put on people's plates. That's hard enough, isn't it? Ladies who prepared for the fellowship meal, or those of you who go to the city gospel mission and you cook for 100 people. That's hard. Well, he had to cook for 100 people, or someone had to cook for 100 people, carry it out into the field somewhere into a cave do it secretly and do it again and again and again every day to keep these men alive it's hard work isn't it it's a big job and so what he was doing was a challenge and there's no telling how long he did it and therefore he's an example to us not just an example that we should work hard, but that he was taking all these great pains, that he was willing to do all this hard work day after day after day with the risk of his life because he was doing it for the sake of the word of God. And we should learn from that. We should go all out and take great pains for the sake of the word of God, not only in our own lives, but to preserve it for other people. That's what Obadiah was doing. By helping these 100, he was preserving the word of God for thousands of people. By providing bread for these 100, he was allowing them to provide spiritual bread for an untold multitude. And we can be just as strategic, can't we? When you provide bread, physical bread, for the Basses and the Methenias and the Epps and the Melcodes and Monica, when you provide financially for them, how many thousands of people are provided for spiritually through them? The same thing could be true if you give to the Gideons who place Bibles in hotels and hospitals and schools, or if you give to prodigal care or pregnancy care or Samaritan's Purse. Even the, the support that you give to me and my family is not just me and my family. It comes back and it helps however many people God gives me the chance to teach and to write for. Which is why yesterday was such a great thing. You guys blessed our family with all these diapers. That seems like, well, that's not really related to the word of God, but it is. It helps us. It provides for us so that we can be here and provide for you and for this community. Thank you, by the way, for doing that. And you do it in that case, or in most of these cases, not nearly in the extreme circumstances in which Obadiah was working. And it's not nearly so hard sometimes as what Obadiah undertook. And yet, it's the same spirit, isn't it? And yet, though we're not doing something quite as difficult, we can join Obadiah in providing bread for a few key prophets who will then spiritually nourish thousands of people. And we don't know for sure where Obadiah got the money and the resources to pay for this. It's possible that Obadiah was able to finagle a way to pay for it out of Ahab's coffers. Wouldn't that be just like God to do it that way? That there was some way that Obadiah was able to pay for this out of the government funds. But probably 
given that he had to keep this a secret, probably he paid for this bread and this water out of his own pockets and using his own connections with other people who paid out of their pockets. And we should follow his example, shouldn't we? Because we love the word of God, we should reach into our pockets and reach into our connections and our resources in order to keep the preachers and the teachers going, in order to keep the missionaries on the field, in order to keep the printing presses running so that people have the word of God in their own language. It's an amazing privilege we have to value and to promote the word of God. So in the courage of Obadiah, we see a lesson about the fear of the Lord, an example of the importance of minor characters, a reminder of the value of the word of God. And then finally, in the courage of Obadiah, we see a picture of the normal Christian life. What Obadiah was doing represents the normal life of a normal Christian. Now, again, I know that in many ways, Obadiah's situation was far from normal. He was living in an unusual period of persecution. He had an unusually high position in the government, and therefore he was able to help an unusually large number of the Lord's servants. So I'm not saying his circumstances equal the normal Christian life, but his heart surely does, doesn't it? Surely every Christian has a heart for other believers, especially when they're in need a longing to help God's people in the time of difficulty. I wrote about this in relation to my trip in Europe, how everywhere we went, in Germany and Scotland and different cities in Scotland, there were believers there who had never met us before in their lives, and they welcomed us into their homes, they fed us, they drove us around, all kinds of things, not because they knew us or knew anything about what we were doing there, but just because we were believers, that we were children of God, we were their brothers and sisters in Christ. It was Third John 5 in action where we're told, Beloved, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, for your fellow believers, especially when they are strangers. We saw that spirit marvelously in Germany and Scotland, and we see it marvelously this morning in this man called Obadiah. And it's the spirit that's really in all God's children. We're family. And so we have this God-given desire, if we belong to God, to be hospitable to his people, to be there for his people. And we need to recognize that desire that's in us if we're his children and cultivate it. It's one thing to recognize that we have it, but it's another thing to go, I'm going to cultivate it. I'm going to build a lifestyle that enables me to fulfill this desire of helping God's people, of being hospitable to them, of blessing the missionaries and so on. I want to cultivate a lifestyle that enables me to be what Obadiah was. Maybe not to a hundred prophets, but maybe to one or two or three. Maybe not even to prophets, but just to other believers who are in need of help, who are in need of encouragement and so on. It's just in need of someone to invite them over for a meal. And let me say this as well. Obadiah's actions remind us that the normal Christian desire is to want to help God's people in general, but especially to want to help God's people who are persecuted. Isn't that what he's doing here? I mean, I'm sure he would have helped these prophets even in good times, and perhaps that's how he knew a hundred of them and could help them now. But especially when they were being persecuted. That's just normal for us. It ought to be, right? Normal for us to see Christians who are suffering because of their faith and to step in. So that if you read the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter, we have it out on the 
table out in the hallway and you can get it for free in your mailbox. If you read that, you will find yourself saying, boy, how can I provide bread and water for these people who are suffering because of their faith? How can I serve these widows who have lost their husbands because their husbands were preaching the gospel openly in China or in the Middle East? Let me pray for their perseverance. If you don't get the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter, you should get it. You should sign up for it. You should ask me, and I will tell you how to get it, or I'll sign you up for it myself. Because what's happening in the world today is that 1 Kings 18.4a is being repeated all over the place. And so must verse 4b. In other words, Satan, verse 4a, always has his Jezebels who are ready to destroy the prophets of the Lord and to destroy other Christians. But we have the privilege of being God's Obadiahs, verse 4b, providing them with bread and water, hiding them in caves if need be. Obadiah risked his neck for fellow believers who are in trouble. And I'm saying that's the normal Christian life. And the reason that's the normal Christian life is not because we're followers of Obadiah mainly, is it? But because we're followers of Christ. We're Christians. And what did Christ say about himself and just about people in general? Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Obadiah was doing that, wasn't he? Risking his life for his friends in the family of God. And more than Obadiah, Jesus risked his life. Jesus gave his life for his friends, didn't he? And Jesus giving his life is 10,000 times greater than what Obadiah did. Because Jesus didn't come and risk his life and give his life while we were out preaching the word of the Lord like these prophets. Jesus came and gave his life, what? While we were yet sinners. Isn't that amazing? That Christ loved us enough to come and lay down his life while we were yet sinners? It's amazing love. It's amazing commitment to us. Do you know that love, incidentally? Do you know what it's like to have embraced Jesus who died for your sins, to trust him as your hope, as your savior? If you do, then let me read to you 1 John 3.16 because it tells us at least one of the implications of that. We know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If we know the love of Christ, if we know what it's like to be a sinner and to need forgiveness and to realize that Jesus died for my forgiveness, he laid down his life for me, this is love, then the next step is to say, let me not only receive his love and his forgiveness, but let me now, verse 16, lay down my life for the brethren, for the fellow believers. That's what Obadiah was doing. Way back in the Old Testament, he was following Jesus. He was mirroring Jesus before he ever knew Jesus' name. Obadiah is here as a little tiny marker along the path that leads us to understand Jesus. Here is someone giving his life for the brothers. And here on the cross is the someone giving his life for the brothers. And so for us who far better than Obadiah know the name of the Lord Jesus and know how he died on the cross for us and why he did it, then we ought to be like Obadiah and more than that like Jesus and lay down our lives for 
the brethren.